you know, this this is there's a culture of rugged individualism that's really pervasive in low income communities. I'm the boss and everybody else works for me. You know, I get the big checks, everybody gets checked. That was a bar right there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been doing my best to like highlight, you know, you know, the the part I look at things like the part of like the parts of a bike. Like the whole bike is working cooperatively, right? Um will where would the front wheel be without the back wheel? You know, you could probably still ride the bike, but it's not going to be very, <laughs> it's going to be very uncomfortable, right? How about the right pedal without the left pedal? You know, how about the bike without the body? How about the body without the bike? As a way of like, we all need to work together. You know, you might have a little, and you might have a little, but together we got a lot. with the people then the people must be bold fight to liberate the soul while we liberate our souls liberate the resource change the story that's been told we say welcome to stories from home moving the just transition and i'm your host keenan rhodes last season We called this podcast Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, as we took you to parts of the country where leaders embody just transition in their work and daily lives. This season, it's moving the just transition, movement through time. We've talked about the origins of environmental justice and climate justice. I think that environmental racism really begins in the slave quarters. I think it begins with the extraction of our land and our labor. Movement across ideas and solutions through the ways that communities are solving climate change without leaving anyone behind. It's a cultural revolution that we need, quite honestly. And anything that's not focused on cultural revolution in my head and in my heart is a false solution. And movement through hearts and minds and the importance of art and storytelling to change the world. I think is a huge part of, of storytelling um, is, is how we change the sense of value and worth, especially in a capitalist society. <laughs> And to thread the needle, in our last episode of the season, we get to where the movement begins. Within ourselves, and our relationship to ourselves, to others, and to the world. Our survival as a species is to connect with each other in a way that the dominant power structure doesn't want us to. And from that that foundation, you can build so much. You'll hear from Aguila Nataraj and Asli NY Africa at the Kepra Institute in Indianapolis, Indiana. Kepra builds community wealth by investing in the knowledge, culture, livelihood, resources, and environment of the neighborhood and beyond. P.S. It's also the community I was raised in. And you'll hear from Najari Smith, founder of Rich City Rides, a bicycle cooperative in Richmond, California. This co-op is an example of what a just transition looks like. Najari is also the founder of Cooperation Richmond, which helps develop and scale work on cooperatives in Richmond, California. He's a masterful storyteller and navigates how his own experiences of community and connection led to Rich City Rides and other projects. I've just been more of the conduit or the vessel to bring these things together, so I'm honored by that. Lastly, you'll hear from Marion G co-executive director of Climate Justice on the intersection of grief and our personal calling to leadership. First, we touch base in Indy with Kepra. 
My name is Aguila Nataraj, and I've been with Kepra for about five years now. One of my primary roles in the space is um, as the grants manager and on the fund development team, as well as environmental justice work. I also represent Kepra Institute as a youth leader on the Climate Justice Alliance Board of Directors. Aguila's grandfathers are from South India and of the Tamil people. They moved to Malaysia as rubber plantation workers, while India and Malaysia were both under British occupation. Both Aguila and her parents were born in Malaysia. They moved to Japan for a few years when she was still a baby, then migrated to the U.S., eventually settling down in Indiana. Kepra and its focus on community immediately resonated with Aguila. And, you know, came to the U.S. a little bit before 9-11, very much shaped by that experience as well. So was very tied and drawn to doing like community work and then as more as my political consciousness raised very clear about you know the path or at least my path around liberation was community building and community grassroots work. Asli in Africa, youth leader has been a part of Kepra as long as she can remember. My name is Asli. Um, I've been around Kepra for pretty much my whole life. My father um, was, I guess, a part of the generation before mine that was uh, into the Kepper work. And so um, I first started just tagging along with him, you know, running errands with dad and um, being around the space like that. And then my older brother and I, who also works very closely with Kepper, were tagging along with him. And eventually we just, it just became a place that we went to every single Sunday. Um, they used to have round table discussions where people in Kepra would talk about different topics every Sunday. and That just became, you know, part of the ritual. The Kepra Institute is all about starting with self and about community. It started as a summer program and an effort for two Black parents to support the children in their neighborhood. It's been 20 years since then. Now, it's an intergenerational community organization that fosters leadership, entrepreneurship, and critical thinking skills. The young people and the elders take these tools to empower each other and other members of their communities and neighborhoods. To me, that just means bettering yourself and making sure that you're able to master tools and skills by yourself for yourself. And in reflection of that, you're able to be a better asset to the community. You're able to share more knowledge. You're able to um, help develop and help empower and help other people gain that mastery once you have it within yourself. And particularly as folks who come from marginalized communities, you know, there's a like a very invested narrative and project of like making you feel powerless and making you feel like you don't have any agency and like you can't do anything. And I feel a lot of like, the work that Kepra does is challenging that very directly. It's around interdependence and like self-determination. While at Kepra and part of the Climate Justice Alliance's Story Snapshots project, I trained young people in skills of video production, and together we produced a short film, The Kepra Story. It's about community wealth building and Kepra's origins that you can find in the show notes. As a young person at Kepra, I grew up in this space working in gardens, hosting critical conversations and book studies about white supremacy, police violence, environmental justice, and many other topics that impact our daily lives. You don't enter the Kepra space and not emerge with some critical tools to foster leadership and self-mastery. The cliche believing yourself is pretty common. 
But when some folks have been systematically disempowered and discouraged from imagining better futures, believing in self-determination and our ability to shape our fates is very powerful. Kepra sees this mastery of self, this growth, as foundational to community wealth. Community wealth building is a framework and idea that we came across maybe a couple of years ago. We were reading this book and, you know, not to expose us as a bunch of nerds, but we are a bunch of nerds. Um, we were reading, um, trying to look this up, this book around community wealth building from the Democracy Collaborative. And we, as we were reading it, we realized we're like, that's, that's the work that we do. And it's a framework that looks at how are we looking at the resources, the, the potential and the assets that exist in community in a collective approach that enables us to care for each other and the planet. And, you know, when people think of wealth, people often think of just like finance, right? Money, how much money I have in the bank, how much are my assets, stock options. But we're looking at wealth so much more broadly at not just the relationships we have. What is the intellectual capital we have? Like, what are the the histories of knowledge and skills that people in our community have? The cultural piece, you know, there's a lot of arts and culture that exist in our communities that are very critical to you know, our survival and our, our thriving in a way. And so community wealth building is a philosophy and an approach that Kepper uses to communicate the expanses of, of what we do. And that is a people-centered approach to empowerment and community. So at the core of community wealth building, we have the self and self-growth and self-mastery so that we are ready and able to build and shape our community. During the moments of crisis, people step in, right? People step in, step up to provide what is needed because, you know, that's what a lot of us have already been doing. You know, the relationships we have with each other help provide the critical, I would say, like infrastructure and ability to respond and organize. So you see in moments of crisis, like the COVID pandemic or natural disasters, how networks or communities just like come together to provide what is needed. So I'm going to give an example really quick of why relationships, like how relationships have led to tangible impact in a community is, you know, at Kepra we have um, every Sunday, and this has been for maybe about two, three years, maybe even before, we had a member of our team initially, on who had a relationship with uh, Dove House Recovery, which is a women's recovery shelter, right, maybe when, like half a mile up, maybe from where we're at. And they get a lot of Trader Joe's food recovery. And they're like, we, we don't need all of this. Would y'all be interested in picking some up? And so from that, we, you know, that relationship has led, led to about now we get like sometimes 40 to 60 boxes of produce, of food, of like rice, like just like grocery stuff from Trader Joe's and like some other places. And now we are able to distribute that food on a wider scale. Stories like these are common in communities that build their capacity for mutual aid, a term that describes the collective actions it takes to support community well-being and reaffirm that all lives have inherent value. 
Mutual aid often takes place when a community grows an ecosystem of ways to take care of itself when systems and institutions around them fail or even cause them harm. You often see mutual aid networks spring up in climate and environmental crises, like when natural disasters or corporate environmental disasters take place, or during the COVID-19 pandemic and the inadequate protections for people most vulnerable to the illness. It's also been a long history of practice in communities of color. Free black populations post-Civil War often had to rely on each other for support. The Black Panthers also had many survival programs intended to develop and fill in the social services that should have been provided by the state to underserved black communities like free health clinics, providing free breakfast to school kids, employment and workforce development, and legal aid, just to name a few. Many immigrant communities have informal economies and associations of care and support to help new folks find housing, jobs, and access government resources. A common principle of mutual aid is solidarity, not charity. We're all capable and enough just the way we are, and we can support one another to have thriving communities. If you put an intention out into the universe and, you know, you're investing and you're putting work in it, like the universe conspires with you. And to really invest in the relationships you have with people around you, to get to know folks, you know, what, who are they? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their challenges? Like, because that act in and of itself is, is, a, is an act of liberation. It's on that foundation of intention, investment, relationships, dreams, and visions of active liberation that Najari Smith co-founded Rich City Rides. My name is Najari Smith, originally from Brooklyn, New York. Been in the Bay Area for over a decade now, and I'm the executive director of Rich City Rides, as well as the co-founder and co-owner, one of the worker owners of the Rich City Rides Bicycle Cooperative. Let me see, I just came, just prior to starting this interview, I rode through a park that we helped build called Unity Park here in Richmond, California. It's about two blocks away from the shop, about maybe three blocks away from, from where I live. I live in Richmond, I work in Richmond, I build in Richmond, I organize in Richmond. Rich City Rides begins in his childhood in Brooklyn. A lot of how I grew up in Brooklyn also speaks to the work that I do now. You know, I'm a child of one of three, you know, it was me and my little brother that I grew up with um, with my mom, you know, single mother. We um, didn't grow up with a whole lot, um, came up on welfare. You know, my older brother, he lived with, um, with our grandparents. And I remember, you know, as, as I was growing up, just my thing was, I just don't want to be poor, <laughs> right? You know, that was a lot of the things that in, in those early years of coming up, growing up, led me to, to what I do now. Like, I still remember my first um, my first memories of being in a bike was in the child seat, the orange child seat, my mom's white Peugeot road, road bike in Brooklyn, and she would take us on rides through Prospect Park. And now, as an, you know, as an adult, one of our most popular activities are these bike rides that we do with youth and families originating from Unity Park on the Richmond Greenway to we've been to every park in Richmond 
we've done some some longer excursions to parks in our neighboring in neighboring cities. Now, Rich City Rides is the only bike shop in Richmond, California, and one of the few cooperatives there. It hosts bike repair workshops every Friday called Fix It Fridays. You know, a lot of that when I when I think back and reminisce on things, it originated with these rides, you know, with my mom. It later, you know, the we do bicycle repair workshops, Rich City Rides does every Friday. We call them Fix It Fridays. And, you know, my first experience with my first bike was there was no place for it to get repaired. So as it began to break down, we just got rid of it, you know, and I didn't get another bike until um, until I purchased my own later on in life. Najari moved to Richmond, California during the recession and housing crisis of 2009. Two years later, he was on the BPAC the city of Richmond's Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Committee. They had just finalized their bicycle master plan and a pedestrian master plan. These plans are, they're taken from community feedback and like a, a look into the future of how, how the streets would be, um, improvements that be made on the street. I had gotten into, into the BPAC and interested in it based on um, just social rise that I had been that I had been a part of. And one of the missing elements to the to the B pack is like they're focused on the built infrastructure, but what about the human part? We build these bike lanes, who are we building them for? Right? So um, that was one of the inspirations for starting Rich City Rides. It's because if we're building these bike lanes, I need to make sure that the community is involved. From there, he started the Richmond Rides Photo Project, which captured photo portraits of riders who used the Greenway, a three-mile pedestrian and bike path surrounded by community art and urban agriculture. It was a project where we were taking photos, photographs of, of people who rode the Greenway. So it would be the, the dad and, um, and his kids. It would be the, um, the family who was riding by. It would be you know, the, the, the recycler, you know, who was just using the bike to collect cans or whatever. It would be the, just, it would be the, it was just like a rainbow of all the types of people that ride bikes, you know, and not just the folks that dress up in Lycra, but just the everyday communities as well. This got picked up by the Richmond Arts Center who um, provided the resources to display this project in, in their, um, in their exhibit. Then, he started hosting the free bicycle repair workshops and more. You know, this is before the park, before Unity Park was built, before the bike shop was there. The first things that we did was um, I reached out to some neighborhood mechanics who would come out once a month and we'd take a donated bike, refurbish it. And at the end of the day, we, we, don't, we, gave, the bike to, we gave the bike to somebody who needed it. Um, our very first project was in response to a council member who said that that people in Richmond don't ride bikes, and especially Black folks in Richmond don't ride bikes. And um, that was the start of us doing these Friday night rides, paired off with the um, bicycle repair workshops. It was later on that we got the name Rich City Rides. I was actually in this in this team meeting with our longtime collaborator, um, Urban Tilth. And one of the youth, 
one of Urban Till's youth. They, they're not a youth anymore. This was like nine years ago. But she said, you know, you should call it Rich City, right? I was showing her the logo like I was putting the logo together right there on the spot. And um, she said, call it Rich City. So I did. And I immediately edited, <laughs> edited the logo and put that in there. And that's what it's been called ever since. You know, shout out to Tere Jimenez, who was the young woman who came up with the, with the name originally. He attributes the shop idea to the young people in the community. You know, there's youth that have been through our programs. The bike shop actually wouldn't even been there if it wasn't for a youth that advocated for it. He started our first um, our first youth bike club. And I was just in the, you know, through Rich City Rides, we just supported what he wanted to do. Like they came up with the logo. I have a background in graphic design, so digitized the logo for him. And, you know, this is like before the bike shop was there. And he came to me, he was like, you know, Jari, we, we need a, we need a home base, you know? And he had all, he had one, he had always wanted to work in a bike shop anyway. Let's get this shop built. The bike shop is just one part of a larger ecosystem of community wealth and the idea of co-creating neighborhoods that are by us and for us. People are the biggest resource. You know, we can't. Rich City Rides wouldn't be what it is right now without people. And it's not going to be what it becomes without without the people here. It's based on that that we've started the Rich City Project, which continues to pay homage to the name Rich City. And that project is based on, one, securing property for community. So purchasing these properties, developing them residential as well as commercial for uh, for the community good. So the bike shop has to be there for the next 10 generations, right? Long after I'm gone, we want to make sure that this thing always remains in the community. And we're looking at a childcare cooperative that we want to build. There's the Black Wellness Hub at Unity Park that we're looking to build. But we want to take our community engagement to a level of, great, we've built a park. We've built a bike shop. Let's build the village. And for us, a rich city... You know, the definition of that is a city where everybody has what they need, you know, food, clothing and shelter, you know, a reason to get up in the morning, friends and family, you know, interconnection. Most profoundly, no matter your feelings on the word spirituality, Najari has a deep trust in his intuition, a groundedness in his own ability to make a difference, a deep practice of trust in himself that allows him to be a powerful conduit for community change. We can all cultivate our own trust and belief that we are enough, we're worthy, we're powerful, and we're able. Marion G., one of the three co-executive directors of CJA, keenly feels the urgency of just transition as she processes the grief of losing her mother earlier this year. She's been with CJA since 2015. I think something I should talk to other folks about, too, is I just feel impatient, too. Like, impatient with the little things. You know, whereas like, like, I, I don't know, it's like time is different now. Like, I got to say goodbye to my mom. And one of the last things that she said was to live life to the fullest. And so coming back, like trying to like live into that is really hard because you see people talking about something that just seems so insignificant. <laughs> like, just like compare like in like the like the big scheme of everything, you know. Marion was born in Arizona and grew up in Southern California with multiple cultures in her heritage. I think 
growing up in Irvine and in Hacienda Heights, like I, I was really lucky that my parents decided to stay there or come back to Southern California because uh, I had all my grandparents. So my, my mom Kay's parents were from New Jersey and they were only children of farmers there and um, had come to California in the fifties. And that's where my mom was born. And uh, it was just really unique experience going out to spend time with them on their farm. <laughs> and um, especially being around my grandmother, she was very um, just like, stubborn and independent and like I feel like sounds like from a long line of stubborn and independent women um and then my father's Kelvin's parents um had immigrated from China from southern China from some small villages near Toisan though that side of the family had been in the U.S. for a long time since the 1800s they kind of like went back and forth I think one of my great grandfathers had an MSG factory in Brooklyn and I, and you know, my grandfather was going back and forth. So I just kind of grew up between two really different families. And I think that was part of the special sauce <laughs> that made me who I am. Her father was a professor of pharmacology and her mother was a teacher. She gravitated towards the sciences and married her love of history with a master's in environmental history and policy. But academia didn't answer her questions about her relationship to our environment and our relationships to each other. So, yeah, I did AmeriCorps and I, I lived abroad in Chile for a little while, volunteered with a nonprofit there and met some amazing folks <laughs> when I was doing AmeriCorps, like Dolly, uh, who... He, he and I were the, the people of color at our, our organization, at our environmental organization. And I, that was like when I thought, okay, there's something not right here if, if we're the only two here and I'm only half Chinese. You know, this is, there's more here to that story. And so I think ever since then, doing AmeriCorps, it's been to find that story. And I think that's part of the reason I was so attracted to climate justice science because I was new to it was very over time learning about the environmental justice and climate justice movement and what attracted me to CJA was how clearly they centered that history and the leadership of grassroots and frontline folks who I didn't read about in my history classes. After AmeriCorps, Marion continued at environmental organizations and working at a foundation before she found out about CJA, after becoming a board member at one of CJA's member orgs, Thousand Currents. She started to do some grant writing and coordinate energy democracy calls for CJA. This was the story that felt missing. It's like looking at a painting or something. You know, I was like putting all the pieces, or a puzzle, like putting all the pieces together, and I'm like, this is not all adding up, right? And then I met the folks that were like really like holding the solutions that we needed to see. Yeah, and then I just was like, tell me what else you need <laughs> need me to do, you know? The co-executive director model is one example of practicing just transition. Building the new is going to require some experimentation and a little stepping outside the box. Because even though we know what we're moving towards, we still got our work cut out for us. There's just new models that we all want to explore. And, 
And so this is one way of us exploring that and seeing how we can share responsibility, how we can support different pathways to leadership, how we can challenge other organizations to not just, yeah, rely on one single person to be the face of an organization. And I even think Benicia and Monica and I, and I'll just speak for myself, like I I, I don't think we want to, or I don't want us to be seen as the face either. I hope we've been able to emphasize throughout this episode that leadership comes from within and it's in all of us, especially as we support and be in relationship with each other. And I think that also the the challenging thing that I think you and I have talked about before also is just how to, it was becoming increasingly difficult for various reasons in our society for us to connect person to person anyway. And then you add a pandemic on top of that, it makes it even more challenging. Because I think at the end of the day, when those tough moments happen, that if you have strong trusting relationships, then it's much easier to get through them. So I think that has been always been what I found is like, if something comes up a tough moment, whether it's a climate disaster has come through, um, it's, a, you know, maybe we're in disagreement, you know, that happens uh, in our alliance of 72 plus members, right? They, you don't always agree on everything. Or maybe it's a conflict with an ally or someone else. I think remembering how important relationships are to dealing with the climate crisis. It's not about techno fixes and schemes, just pumping it out of the air. At the end of the day, what we need to be changing is our relationships with each other, with ourselves and with Mother Earth. And so when those tougher moments happen, I have to like, remind myself to connect with those people so we can just be really honest and clear about what's happening and what is the how do we get through this together with that perspective it's urgent for us to focus on collectively moving toward just transition you know the the way we have related to each other is the way we've related to the earth and vice versa and it's one of what can i get out of this person to advance my own goals of whatever it may be very rarely about getting to know the person for who they are and them just like their wholeness right and just supporting each other and I think um a way that like you know humans have existed for a long time we're social creatures we're able to thrive because we're here to support each other we're interdependent we're not just dependent or just independent where our success lies in each other and the collective success lies in the individual too right um i'm able to contribute to my community because community has contributed to me and have you know supported me and like you know this is a story of a lot of other folks you know through challenging times through difficult times as a young person in this moment And so for us, like, you know, we just get to know people and our our focus is not on outcome. Right. Even though like relationships we've built have led to really important, quote unquote, like tangible outcomes and stuff, we're able to support and like exist in a very radical way, in a very resistant way. What we're taught of like. You know, where people are there only to serve a purpose of advancing my own whatever career goal or profit motive or whatever. But, you know, our intentionality is like we're, we're investing in people. We're going deep because people are worth it. And 
our survival depends on it. That future is, you know, currency being able to circulate through the community much more before it exits the community. That looks like those who have been who have been barred away from resources, who have not had the connections that they need to do the things that they aspire to. It's really dismantling systemic oppression. That's what it looks like. It looks like everybody having what they need and nobody needing to take too much. It looks like, you know, I can get everything that I need and it has like a very specific flavor to it. Um, in Richmond, California, that may look, taste, and feel different. And um, in Brooklyn, New York, that may taste and feel different. And, um, in Indianapolis. And, you know, when I travel to these places, I'm able to see things are similar, but it's got that, uh, that, that special flair to it. I can't get anywhere else. For me, you know, and I think of things like, you know, I've been told that pineapples taste differently in Hawaii. You know, you have to go to Hawaii to get those. You know, it, I, I don't need, I don't need a, a, a tomato from a thousand miles away if we can grow these you know locally it's everybody knowing who their neighbors are you know is a child is out there you know you see a child in the park and everybody knows the child everybody knows the parents and everybody knows that, that child is going to be protected it's um caring for our seniors and our elders um, because we have the bandwidth and the time to do so as well as the resources it's um, beautiful families in whatever way a family looks like to you. Um, being able to thrive and just on that level. Same way your body has to like, your, your right leg has to, has, to, has to work with your left leg to get you where you're going. You know, to me, the village is no different. There's that African proverb that um, by yourself you can go fast, but together we go far. And we've got so much further to go. So we got to go there together. Thanks for tuning in to Stories from Home this season. We hope you've enjoyed the ride with us this year. And we hope you continue to live the just transition in the ways that you are within your homes and communities. Our survival depends on it. Stories from Home is a production of the Climate Justice Alliance featuring me, your host, Keenan Rhodes, story editors Jessica Zhao and Olivia Burlingame, and sound editing by Elijah Pogues. To learn more about the Climate Justice Alliance, visit climatejusticealliance.org.